0: his home and had to be taken to the hospital. He was diagnosed with strep throat, but his deeper complaint was simply exhaustion, and his doctor was concerned about stress to his heart. Though the breakdown was still to come, such in outline was C.S. Lewis's world the evening he had his friend Roger Lancelin Green to dinner at Maudlin's High Table and to his rooms for talk afterward. It is unlikely that Green had any idea how miserable his friend had been and he surely could not have suspected that Lewis would soon be in the hospital. That evening Lewis was a charming host, and, Green wrote in his diary, they had wonderful talk until midnight. He read me two chapters of a book for children he is writing. Very good indeed, though a trifle self-conscious. This book would eventually become The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first story about a world called Narnia. Many years later, In the biography of Lewis that Green wrote with Walter Hooper, he added a brief commentary on that diary entry, referring to himself in the third person. Nevertheless, it was a memorable occasion which the listener remembered vividly, and remembered his awed conviction that he was listening to a book that could rank among the great ones of its kind. It is hard not to see this as a case of revisionist memory like the tale of some old baseball scout who claims that he knew from the first time he laid eyes on a seventeen-year-old shortstop that one day the boy would be in the Hall of Fame. If Green had had an awed conviction of the book's potential greatness, surely that would have been recorded in the diary entry written so soon after the memorable occasion. Perhaps, after all, the draft chapters that Lewis read really were no more than very good. Isn't that sufficient praise? And perhaps they really were marred to some degree by self-consciousness. After all, Green and Hooper note on the same page of their biography that Lewis got stuck for quite some time and couldn't get the story past its opening chapters. Lewis himself had written in a letter sometime earlier, I have tried to write a children's story myself, but it was, by the unanimous verdict of my friends, so bad that I destroyed it. And according to Green's later recollections, Lewis had already tried out the story on his friend J.R.R. Tolkien and had received a pronounced negative response. It might even be that Green was too generous to his beloved guide and friend. Perhaps the story he read that night wasn't good at all. Yet. But whether what Lewis read to Green was any good seems beside the point. What is remarkable about the scene is that in the midst of all his miseries, the writing of a story for children is what Lewis had turned to. I have said that he was already famous, but his fame was chiefly that of a controversialist, a polemical contender for Christianity. Certainly that was the thrust of Time's cover story, which emphasized Lewis's then forthcoming book arguing for the validity of belief in miracles. He was also a highly accomplished scholar, perhaps already, in his mid-forties, the most accomplished on the Oxford English faculty. He had written fiction, too, but of a highly intellectual character, A bachelor with no children of his own, he had relatively few friends whose children he knew. He would not seem to be a likely candidate to be writing a children's book. Moreover, he was never an aficionado of children's books. Even in the year before his death he could tell a correspondent, My knowledge of children's literature is really very limited. My own range is about exhausted by MacDonald, Tolkien, E. Nesbitt, and Kenneth Graham and he never read The Wind and the Willows or Nesbitt's stories of the Vastable family until he was in his twenties. Yet you can see Lewis's love of children's stories in the oddest places and in the most charming ways. In one of his most learned and scholarly books, a preface to Paradise Lost, and Paradise Lost is as sober and serious and adult a poem as one can imagine, Lewis quotes his eighteenth-century predecessor at Maudlin College, Joseph Addison, the great moral which reigns in Milton is the most universal and most useful that can be imagined, that obedience to the will of God makes men happy and that disobedience makes them miserable. Lewis then notes that a fellow literary critic, E. M. W. Tillyard, called Addison's comment vague, and having stated that Tillyard's claim amazes him, off he goes. Dull, if you will, or platitudinous, or harsh, or jejune, but how vague! Has it not rather the desolating clarity and concreteness of certain classic utterances we remember from the morning of our own lives? Bend over. Go to bed. Write out, I must do as I am told a hundred times. Do not speak with your mouth full. How are we to account for the fact that great modern scholars have missed what is so dazzlingly simple? It is, after all, the commonest of themes. Even Peter Rabbit came to grief because he would go into Mr. McGregor's garden. This is as delightful as it is wise. Any literary critic who can, in the course of a few sentences, take us from the great Milton's account of the fall of humanity in twelve books of stately and heroic blank verse, to Beatrix Potter's rather humbler account of Peter Rabbit's rather humbler troubles, is a critic of, to put it mildly, considerable range. And the naturalness with which he achieves this, Clearly it never occurs to Lewis to imagine that there is some great disjunct between Milton's world and Beatrix Potter's. And once he puts the likeness before us, it's easy for us to see too. After all, leaving aside the one fact that Adam and Eve's decision was disastrous for all of us while Peter's was nearly disastrous just for himself, the two stories have a great deal in common. But it takes someone of Lewis's peculiar stamp to recognize the ethical shape of a narrative world in which obedience to just authority brings happiness and security, while neglect of that same authority brings danger and misery. Few writers other than Lewis could open to us that sphere of experience in which John Milton and Beatrix Potter can be seen as laborers in the same vineyard, that sphere in which a moral unity suddenly seems far more important than those otherwise dramatic differences in time, genre, and purpose. And it was not just a few children's classics of the past about which Lewis was enthusiastic. Lewis served as almost a midwife to many children's stories, including those of Green and, most famously, those of his friend and Oxford colleague Tolkien. In 1932, Tolkien took the chance of reading aloud to Lewis a story he had written. Lewis adored it and insisted that others would too. He badgered Tolkien into seeking to have it published, which eventually he did in 1938. The story was called The Hobbit. So those who knew Lewis best were not surprised at all when he brought forth drafts of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or when he published it in late 1950. But perhaps they would have been surprised had they known that that story, and the six that followed it into Narnia, would bring him greater fame and influence than all his other books combined, making his name known all over the world. The Chronicles of Narnia have been translated into more than thirty languages, and worldwide, have sold more than 85 million copies. No one could have guessed that that was the future of the little story for children that Lewis was struggling with, along with all the other things he was struggling with, that evening in 1949, when he invited Green to dinner. In 1944, when Lewis was beginning to be quite famous, though not nearly as famous as Narnia would later make him, The American publishing house Macmillan asked him for a brief biographical sketch that they could include in his books. Macmillan had started to publish his more popular ones the year before, and clearly expected their audience to want to know something about the life of this remarkable writer. Lewis was not especially interested in writing or talking about himself. Indeed, his close friend Owen Barfield thought this one of Lewis's more noteworthy traits. There was so much else in letters and in life that he found much more interesting. But when asked for a statement, he would sometimes comply. Some years later, he wrote a whole book, surprised by joy, to satisfy the curious. Here's what he sent to the people at Macmillan. I was a younger son, and we lost my mother when I was a child. That meant very long days alone when my father was at work and my brother at boarding school. Alone in a big house full of books. I suppose that fixed a literary bent. I drew a lot, but soon began to write more. My first stories were mostly about mice, influence of Beatrix Potter, but mice usually in armor, killing gigantic cats, influence of fairy stories. That is, I wrote the books I should have liked to read, if only I could have got them. That's always been my reason for writing. People won't write the books I want, so I have to do it for myself. No rot about self-expression. I loathed school. Being an infantry soldier in the last war would have been nicer if one had known one was going to survive. I was wounded by an English shell, hence the greetings of an aunt who said with obvious relief, Oh, so that's why you were wounded in the back. I gave up Christianity at about fourteen, came back to it when getting on for thirty. An almost purely philosophical conversion. I didn't want to. I'm not the religious type. I want to be let alone to feel I'm my own master, but since the facts seem to be the opposite, I had to give in. My happiest hours are spent with three or four old friends in old clothes, tramping together and putting up in small pubs, or else sitting up till the small hours in someone's college rooms talking nonsense, poetry, theology, metaphysics, over beer, tea, and pipes. There's no sound I like better than adult male laughter. Lewis undoubtedly.